0: It's like there's four people in your relationship. You, your partner, and your two phones.
1: (laughs) Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love & Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Averill. Welcome to Love & Life. I'm Dr. Karen anderson April Elliot is back with us to talk about something that's been coming across my radar pretty frequently. So as we often do, I called Elliot and I said, listen, this is something that I'm hearing a lot about. What are you hearing from your couples that you work with and the students you teach? And he said, absolutely. And within three minutes, we decided, yes, this was a topic we wanted to address on the podcast because it's everywhere. And It's impacting us in ways that we are still uncovering through research because it's new technology. And yes, I'm talking about our phones, these magical devices that we all have on us at all times, which allow us to look up information. I think about when Warren and Elliot were kids and they'd fight over who was the MVP for such and such year in such and such sport. And they'd yell and punch each other in the face and wrestle. Now we don't have those arguments. We just pull out our phone and we look it up. So there's some beautiful things and we are not Luddites, we are not anti-technology at all. But if we are honest with ourselves, we have to look at how these devices, how they're impacting our relationships, friendships, family members, and most certainly they're impacting our romantic relationships. I'm thinking about the young digital natives. They grew up with this technology, so it's been part of their development such that it's really an extension of themselves, this phone and how it's impacting their ability to create, cultivate, and deepen intimacy with a romantic partner. Elliot, take it away.
0: Yeah, I think it's an individual issue first. Some of the stuff we deal with, the attachment issue things, the wound things that we've talked through, always have a root in our individuality first, but then it's so applicable or integrated into the couple work, partner work, romance work. For the generational gaps, it's a different issue. I think our age group and our couples and partners and married folks that I work with in the Gen X or the baby boomers, they're more aware of the phone being an extension of self and something that is dangerous or vulnerable. Where Gen Zers, it's so much a part of their existence. It's truly like another appendage. And there's research that packs this up. I listened and watched a bunch over the last 24 hours after we had talked and said, hey, let's do this and just got all kinds of new information that was just confirming the things I'd already been teaching in class. I do experiments with our students about putting their phones away, not only in the class, but taking a day off or changing their rhythms and their habits. It's fascinating to read the responses. And so automatically then if we know something's rooted in individuality and you're in some type of romantic relationship or pursuit or partnership or commitment, it's going to raise itself and often significantly.
1: So, you mentioned an experiment you did with your students recently. And so, what did that look like? And you said the written responses. So, then I'm guessing you had them reflect on that experiment of tracking their hours, was it, or trying to take a digital fast? Or how did that play out? And what kind of responses did you get from the Gen Zers?
0: Yes, it was a um, chemical dependency class, which I teach. <laughs> so, basically, addictions and process addictions are what they call behavioral addictions. They're not substance use um, addictions. And now the DSM. What are we on? Five R or are we on six?
1: You know me and the DSM. I'm not a fan. Well, Medical. Well, whatever. Everything, my point with the DSM. It was the, DSM, the five last time I
0: I know it's at least care. five R. So anyway. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, at least five R. And I teach abnormal in four weeks. I gotta get my act together. But my point is that process addictions now is having its own category and getting the same response and respect and recognition as substance abuse addictions or substance use addictions, what they call them. So we were studying this in class. We watched some really cool videos about the brain neurology of phones and how it messes with our reward center and the dopamine and all the things we've talked about before. And sometimes we talked about that just in porn, but scrolling and the gambling online and all the stuff with liking and following all that stuff messes with the reward center. And so as a class, we were talking, it's a class of all upperclassmen. So it was really fun. Some of the best students in psychology at the school. So really sharp group. And on their own, hey said, let's do some comparison. So, you know, the phone, here's another part of the technology helping you. Just like you can count your steps. That's when I use my phone a lot, see how my steps are. It tracks, it gives you a weekly report on how much time you spent on your phone. And so we started monitoring that and then going around with like almost a group counseling experience. And each student was saying, here's what my average was last week. This is what it looks like. This is what I'm doing on that. The top academic student in the school was in that class. And she had a relatively high score for her four and a half hours. And she was pretty upset about it. But then she looked back and said, I listened to a bunch of podcasts, including yours and your sister's, Elliot, trying to defend herself. But uh, she was showing those things and we talked through it. But a couple of the other students were like eight and a half, nine hours. And one of the students, wonderful young lady, just flat out said, I always knew it was a problem. But now that we watch the videos and we talk through this as a group, I got to do something. And so then we talked and looked at the research in particular about the half hour when you wake up and the half hour before you go to bed. And so we started there as a class. So it it spurred on such excellent conversation and excellent connection, several to make significant changes.
1: You mentioned something just the last few minutes, which was that the neural processes are in fact different based on time of day. So you talked about early morning and late at night. Elaborate yeah, on that give a little you,
0: bit. Yeah. In particular, one of the podcasts, he talked about, imagine if you started your day every day with one of those searchlights from the world wars, and then that they shine up in the skies to tell you there's an event somewhere. You know how powerful those lights yeah. are. I can't remember what they're called. But he said, imagine if you started your day every day, shining that in your face. That's what it's like for your brain that's been sleeping and at rest. And the first thing you do is kick on your phone and start scrolling.
1: And isn't that a lot of people? The first thing they do is grab their phone. Because they use their phone for their alarm clock.
0: In personality class, we do an experiment on that side of it, Karen, and train our bodies to wake ourselves up. That you don't need your phone. You don't need an alarm clock. If you get in a consistent rhythm and actually talk to yourself and tell yourself when you want to get up, how you want to get up. Anyway, so thinking about that neurologically, that stimulation to your brain. Uh, Another book or something I was reading said, imagine you start every single day and turn on your favorite music at volume 20, if 12 is the maximum. How that damage would do to your ears. You'd never think about that. No one wants super loud sounds first thing in the morning, but we do that to our eyes, which is the most quick response in our brain neurology immediately. And then the same thing is true at night. Even if you're going to bed at a reasonable time, if you're scrolling, scrolling, viewing right up close to your face, the neurological ability to rest and get into your deeper sleep is awful. My young students talk all the time about, oh, I'm waking up three, four times every single night. I'm like, you shouldn't be doing that until you're my age. (laughs) You shouldn't (laughs) be doing that at your age. You should be in the prime of your sleep. And again, many students fully acknowledge, oh, I spend the last three hours of my night scrolling, Netflixing, and then to go to sleep or keep my phone on while I go to sleep. Right next to them. Mm -hmm. Even if it's playing meditative music and things like that. Oh, you say that could be nice, but it's still a connection, a bonding association to your phone that is mm-hmm. deeply disturbing. Brand new research just came out that the brain from 11 to 3 a.m., which is when a majority of people who get themselves in trouble with phones and behaviors happens, from 11 to 3 a.m., it's actually part of the brain that is triggered during that time frame when it's supposed to be sleeping. They now know it directly causes depression. It's like a distinct, direct association. So when you're on your phone from 11 p.m. at night or till 3 in the morning, Whether you're trying to sleep or not trying to sleep, it's really dangerous for your brain.
1: So related to all this is something that we know. Some of this is coming into the public discourse, the blue light issue. So you have people wearing blue light glasses. But also related is something we also know that these algorithms, it behooves the shareholders of the companies to have us very engaged with these phones and with these platforms to keep us on them. So
0: It's psychological genius.
1: Exactly. I was just going to say.
0: Yeah, it's created to addict us. And I don't think they're very apologetic about that because they're creating their business and I'm all for
1: economic freedoms and free markets.
0: So yeah. And they're not, they're not pretending. They have the most expert research possible, knowing how to hook you, how to create that platform, how to get you on that platform. And obviously even in Dr. Karen, Love and Life, we've used that platform ourselves in that way to try to grab people's attention and help them listen to the information we think is valuable to helping them become who they want to be.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So as an individual trying to negotiate our relationships with ourselves, with others, and to be present, which we know the research always shows that being present in this moment is so healthy for us psychologically. And it's the only way to truly have intimacy is to be in the here and now and listen and respond and have that genuine, authentic, interactions and connections. We're fighting a lot of forces. There's a lot of factions that work against us. Mm -hmm. We have to be savvy. And so we have to know about the neurological responses that you bring up. And you talk about 10 ways, and we'll get to as many as we can today, and then we'll do a subsequent episode because it's just too much good content to put in just one, but 10 ways that phones can actually damage our romantic relationships. We've talked a little bit already about the dopamine, the dependence, that we're looking for that fix. And yes, the analogy to a drug addict is not hyperbolic. There really is this neurological, we're hooked the mm-hmm. way we used to talk about people being hooked on drugs. We're hooked on our phones and we're seeing this. I don't think this is a stretch either, Elliot. I think that in some couples, the phone is like a lover. It's Absolutely. This is the mistress or...
0: Yeah, you see me down there on phone balance issue. I talk about the third wheel in a relationship. I've heard wives in particular, but it's happened with husbands saying, I feel like my spouse is having an affair with their phone. And it's not about porn. It's just about the time. It's about the commitment. It's about the priority.
1: All right. Well, let's start with that one. Since you brought it up, the phone balance. And of course these all weave together. So we'll isolate them, but they will all come together because the phone balance is tricky because you are now hooked on your phone. So let's talk about that. You see the women feel more for the men feel, because I can see women being on Instagram or TikTok and maybe the men, yes, they might struggle with the digital porn that's just in there.
0: Or, or the gambling sites and the other things that are just sure. strong, strongly addictive. And uh, Karen, I related to tire balance. We know when we're driving and the tires are out of balance. Not only is there indicator light that comes up on our nice modern vehicles, but the car doesn't feel right or it's pulling to the right or pulling to the left or making a noise. And so when it's out of balance, we go get the air filled, we get it checked, we make sure, and then the vehicle rides smoothly again. So if we're looking at our phone balance, or if our partner is just making a statement about not feeling present, not feeling like you care, feeling like you're checking your Instagram or your Facebook, your Snap is more important than checking on them, then it's obviously enough of an issue to consider and work through. And What I see a lot of times and a partner says to the other partner, I feel like you're having an affair with your phone. There's already been enough hurt and damage through that where it's been blatantly obvious. I went into a restaurant the other day with Angie, my wife, and I thought there was a strong movement of prayer going on in the restaurant because everyone's had their heads bowed. And then we walk through and everybody's on their phones, literally like everybody. In my classes, if my students come a little bit early at all, a little bit immediately on their phones till I start class. And I am a very engaging, I say hello to every single student by name, no stuff they're going on in their life, athletes, how's your game? How's your practice going? People are getting married seeing all those things. It's like this automatic knee jerk response, any gap in time where there's not something specifically purposeful or intentional, I'm on my phone. And when you do that in the context of a dating relationship, where the phone's always out on the table, present with the people, the phone's always in your hand while you're talking. It, it feels like you're fighting for that attention. Add students having a conversation with me right at the front of the classroom interrupt me to answer their phone or their watch while they're talking to me about something significant like when their papers do or they need an extension on something. Oh, hold on a second. Happens in counseling sessions all the time where the younger folks, it's such an extension of their life that they don't see it as rude or inconsiderate that I'm in the middle of counseling them and they say hold on one second I really got to check this. So putting that into the romantic relationship then, it feels like there's another person competing with you for your spouse's affection, acceptance, appreciation, all those A's of building intimacy and it it causes a massive issue.
1: It reminds me of a study that I came across once that if you are out to lunch or just in a counseling session it's a, it's appalling to me that someone would actually have a phone Even present in the counseling session, but I guess this is what's happening now. But if you have your phone out, even if it's face down on the table and I'm having lunch with a friend, the level of vulnerability that we will feel comfortable expressing will not be as deep because the phone is a threat. I know that if I go to share something very deep and personal, I know that at any moment that phone could ring, the text could come in, and that would disrupt my connection with my friend. So certainly imagine now this happening all day, every day in a romantic relationship. Our couple's ability to have that deep intimacy that we are wired to be part of and to desire, is it always threatened by that phone because it's always there?
0: Absolutely. And that goes up to one of the other categories I talked about just in the straight coping behavior. It's most used as a primary reflex to alleviating boredom. And honestly, to hiding from true intimacy. Yep.
1: So that's Whether you know you it or see, not.
0: Whether you're trying to or not. And so a lot of men in particular, if their wife's complaining about something or the girlfriend's complaining or what they are saying is whining or <laughs> wanting too much attention, the phone is the safe way. I'm going to go look at something that doesn't give me bad feedback. It doesn't tell me I don't talk enough. It doesn't tell me I'm not working hard enough. I'm going to alleviate that intimacy bond or alleviate the vulnerability of that intimacy that seems so scary by going to the secondary form of intimacy that seems so free and rewarding. I can get whatever information I want. I can view whatever I want. I can get response however I want. And though it's understandable in the context of building true intimacy in a partner romantic relationship, the phone could be one of the very top things separating and blocking what you actually desire.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking of a couple that have been married for a couple years and recently took a vacation together. And the wife said to her husband, we've been married two years. We've been together five years. And honestly, I think I know you less now than I did when we first got married as newlyweds even. And she was saying, I think spend too much time away from me via video games and those kinds of things. And he said to her, okay, if we really want to build our intimacy, you're going to have to think very long and hard about your phone.
0: Absolutely. And that's a fair negotiation. Yeah. If it's not based on punitive and simply competitive arrangement. Yeah. But If we're talking about that category, the balance piece, and both are saying, hey, there's some inappropriate balances here, that kind of negotiation, as we just talked about conflict a couple weeks ago, is wonderful. But not doing it simply to say tit for tat, or we're all on the same page, but saying what's going to be beneficial for both of us. Mm -hmm. Certainly, video game escapism is an addiction every bit as much as the phones. And often, again, the same thing, that's an easy, free dopamine rush with appropriate responses that feel safe and not vulnerable. And certainly there's some good social bonding with friends through that. So I'm not anti-video games. But at times I've had spouses say, my partner or my husband or my boyfriend seems to want to play video games with their friends online way more than they want to go on dates with me. And they're probably right. Yeah, That probably is a pattern that has, has now been conditioned. Same thing on the other side where the man could say, my girlfriend's scrolling Instagram every night for two hours. And then wonders why I'm not feeling very romantically connected. So it's certainly, it's not a gender specific issue at all. It just has little different representations and manifestations. And that's as much by personality and temperament as it is gender.
1: I'd love to connect with you via my weekly newsletter. Joining the love and life email list ensures you're the first to know everything going on in the love and life family. You'll receive insider perk pricing for consultations and events and It's the best way to keep in touch when I do what the research suggests is very healthy and take breaks from social media. Subscribe on my website, loveandlifemedia.com. And as a bonus, you'll get my free Empowered Dating Playbook.
0: One of the factors to help your listeners, our listeners, feel whether or not I have an issue for this is some of those basic understandings of addiction. So, two that I talk about with clients all the time is one, do you ever sense that this is causing dysfunction? Is this stopping normal functionality in your life? What does that look like? Are you late for a class because you're scrolling? Are you missing assignments because you're Netflix binging on your phone rather than doing your work? Are you not wanting to go to work, even though you need the money, because you'd rather be on your phone? Are you getting in trouble gambling? because of your phone app to a gambling site that if you don't have that, you have to drive 45 minutes to the casino or something else that wouldn't happen. So looking for basic functionality and is there now dysfunction based on your phone use? And I know we're generalizing the phone use as a category when it's gonna be specific apps on the phone, but it's conditionally associated. They do know now that the bonding to the phone is so strong, we truly feel naked without it. I've been halfway to school from my house, I live about 25 minutes from Judson, halfway there, and literally start to feel a little bit of panic about, oh my goodness, I left my phone in my office at home. And then recognize, I'm fine. I don't need it today, I got an office phone, I got my computer. But we're so conditioned now ourselves personally about that, that we struggle with it. And then the second thing besides dysfunction is the disassociation. I'll let you give a more psychological definition of that in a minute, but for what I'm using it for, in practicality obsessions. Disassociation means you're so involved or so ingested in something or so reflecting on that you lose consciousness for the present. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, you recognize I've been scrolling for 45 minutes. I plan on just going on for five minutes. And next thing you're an hour later, your brain disassociates, you get out of the present, you get almost in a trance state. They know this is true in the research as well. You go into a trance state, the same kind of trance state that happens to other addicts When they're pursuing alcohol or pursuing cocaine or pursuing sex, they get into a trance mode, the hunt, the same thing happens with our phone. And we start scrolling and our rewiring takes place, the dopamine gets moving and all of a sudden we've wasted an hour. One of the girls in the class, when we were doing this experiment said, many times in the past week when we were talking, she started just simply to pass some time and then the whole afternoon was gone. Literally three to four hours straight. This is an A student and an accomplished athlete at her school. This was not some kid who's got a cocaine problem and struggling to get D's. So it's it's not based on intelligence. It's not based on success or function. It's based on an addiction.
1: So there's so many different directions I could go. So many things that occur to me when you're talking about you as a Gen Xer feeling almost naked or feeling anxiety without your phone, I think about how much more that would be for Gen Z. They would feel like, how will I reach out to my friends? Where we would sometimes be in the car and <laughs> be four yeah, phones.
0: Here's a good one right here. I think, let me interrupt quickly, because I think you just hit a valuable point. Yes, for like you or me, we might feel, oh, I feel a little bit naked and disconnected now because I don't have my phone. Where I really think a general Zer would say, I can't function right or continue right now until I have my phone. It's like their arms were just taken away from them. Oh yeah. Or we we would feel in our age group like, oh shoot, that's going to be difficult because I need to reach out to this person or do that. More. Much different.
1: And so that's now talking about a different psychological state, a, a different emotional state. And you talked about it also in a fear conditioning element. So mm-hmm. that fear response, like, how will I? connect with my friends. This lack of independence, which we see with Gen Z, they are taking much longer to grow up than we did, partly because they're tethered to, they can FaceTime their mom 10 times a day from school where we didn't do that. They can. I know I'm sounding like the old person who's like, these kids nowadays, but I just mean that (laughs) we have, I'm concerned about emotional maturity. I'm concerned about them not being able to tolerate boredom, Mm -hmm. not just being in the car with their own thoughts for 20 minutes.
0: Yeah, like why do phones really need to be in the educational system at all?
1: I'd love there's them to be re- gone.
0: There's really no need all the way through graduate school for Pete's sakes. Maybe graduate school is different. if People are working full time. They got kids or something. But still, like how many true emergencies happen right. where we tell ourselves my 10-year-old needs a phone because if there's an emergency, what would happen 50 years ago? <laughs> You'd call the school right? and the school would find your child and right. handle the emergency. So we've conditioned ourselves with this availability and accessibility that now we have to be conditioned to respond to that fear. And yes, my child needs access to Facebook when they're 10. Or they need to have their Kindle with them all the time so they can read if they're bored or feeling anxious. And so we create these associations and these conditions that make it really difficult.
1: And it's infantilizing because what you're also teaching your kid is that they don't have the wherewithal at age 10 to figure out a way to get help if they need it. The only way they can get help is their phone.
0: And one of the biggest things I see to bring it right back into romantic relationships, I see it with the young couples all the time. They can't figure out a pattern or rhythm for their texting. And they're miscommunicating through text or having hurt feelings about the text or one wants to text all the time, the other one doesn't want to. And so again, when I'm teaching interpersonal, you were with me when we did that guest night on romantic relationships, talking to them about at least... FaceTime, at least talk on the phone more than you text. All the research on communication says texting is the least effective form of interpersonal relationship communication. And yet, that's what we do the most. Right. It's clear. This is what the stats say. And first person face to face is number one, always will be. And so, we're longing for this intimacy and relationship and choosing the absolute worst way to go about it all the time. And so, when I tell couples, quit texting each other. Use that only for facts, only for updates on significant times or something that can be quickly given and talk on the phone, at least talk voice to voice. Totally different. A key and Peel, my, my favorite comedians, Yeah, do a great one our listeners could listen to about these two guys trying to decide whether they're going to go hang out that night or not based on texting mm-hmm. and responding to what they thought the texts mean the whole time. Absolutely hysterical. It happens all the time where couples will come into my office. A lot of the young couples here, pastor, can we talk to you? We're having a big fight and big problem. Yeah, come on in. And seriously, 60% of them are about text. Wow. This was said on the text. And I know this is what they really meant. I'm like, how do you know that? We're assuming now we're going to get in these negative intimacy buildups. And so for couples alone listening right now and saying, hey, we're wrestling with base communication. Cut your texting and your snapping and your Instagram in half. When you're talking to each other, that alone will create way better authenticity.
1: And it also is related to boundary issues. So now I'm thinking about a couple, once they are in a committed relationship, we're so accessible. So say Dan and I are on a date night. If I'm getting 25 texts from friends, family, and I'm answering all those texts on our date night, I'm accessible to all these other people when right now I've dedicated this time to be available to my husband. So we have to be much more mindful of boundaries. We have to anyway in relationships and certainly when we're married, then we have to prioritize our spouse and then that means that family members come next and and we have to get that hierarchy of appropriate placement of our relationships. But one challenge to that is that we are now so accessible and available to all these other people, even when we're trying to carve out dedicated time for our partner.
0: Yeah, for sure. And how do we rehab? How do we recover from our phone damaging behaviors in an intimate romantic relationship? And you just nailed one of the big ones about practicing particular things. And one of those is having no phones at dates to literally put your phones away, not just in your pocket even, or nest, leave them in the car. Yeah. And they know now again, Karen, that the sensory process of eating while on your phone or while on your laptop is terrible for you changes your digestion processes changes (laughs) your heart rate and your breathing and again a majority of us i'm saying us not just students are on their phone while they eat yep and on the laptop working so it's not just dates it's our own health and just recognizing The need to slow your body down and be focused on your chewing, focused on what you're drinking and not just inhaling food while you're still on your phone. Right. We don't give our body and our functions time to process the way they're supposed to when we're nonstop tethered to that constant stimuli and neurological movement. We're creating an entire nation of ADHD relationships. No focus, no attention, no ability to avoid impulsive movements and response. It's just really dangerous. We have to be aware. I know you and I feel like we're coming out as old curmudgeons. When I research and teach this stuff, then I immediately apply stuff because I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm doing that. Even when I'm playing my word games and I'm eating my breakfast in the morning, why do I need to do that at the same time? There's no need. Eat my omelet.
1: And that's related to obesity because people aren't even mindful of of how much they've eaten. And so then they don't even feel full because they haven't paid attention to the fact they've been eating for 20 minutes. There's a lot of elements that in a lot of realms of health.
0: So we talked about the 30 minutes after you wake up. So what the students do again is they we do these habit things, then they have to report on them, then they talk about them, then they write about them. We know that changing behavior changes our thought, right? The perspectives can help motivate us to rethink differently, but we got to change the behavior. So I tell students all the time, okay, if you're going to agree to try this, so quit having your phone by your bed. Immediately go put it on your desk or put it in the bathroom or put it somewhere else, although I encourage people not to use the phone in the bathroom also. But the point is start your half hour routine and we write out all your routines. How do you get up in the morning? All of it. How you shower, how you brush your teeth. We go through all this to say, where do we build this in? Because motivation theory talks about it's the thing after the behavior you want that's more important than actually doing something before. So then we use the phone as reward and saying, okay, I got totally dressed got ready for school, ready for work, ate my breakfast. Now I'm going to check my phone for 10 minutes before I get in the drive or the commute. And what you find is that when you do those in appropriate order, appropriate balance, appropriate priority, you don't need the phone the same way. In fact, some people have said, you know what, after I changed my order in the morning, now I don't even look at it all until after my first class. Like you change the whole function, change the whole systemic. So not having your phone out at dates, not having your phone out at meals, not waking up to it, not going to sleep to it. Sorry, go ahead. I I could see you're ready to jump in.
1: I just wanted to underscore what you said, because you said behavior changes our thoughts. Oftentimes we think I'll change my thinking on something and that will help motivate me to change my behavior, which also works.
0: Which also is true. Yeah.
1: Which is also true. But these neural pathways can be reinforced the opposite way. Like you said, sometimes you, your thought is I want to be on my phone because that's what I do. And this is how I connect. And this is my routine. So even before trying to change your mind about it, change your behavior, if that's something that you're desiring to do even though your thought process still your thoughts are yeah. not you're not in charge of your thoughts right now take charge of your behavior to then get your thoughts to follow suit so that's another pathway to change
0: yeah absolutely and i love sweets and so i could eat sugary stuff all day long even though my body feels crappy and i'm like ugh it's terrible but i don't need extra knowledge extra thoughts to know that this isn't good for me. I have to change my behavior. And so once I start changing my behavior, even I love a Coke. And once I change my behavior and say, you know what, I'm done drinking Coke for a while because I'm drinking too much and I don't need it and sugary and everything else. You know what happens. Two weeks later, you have a sip of Coke. You like it's not even that good. You change your behavior and then your thoughts, your perspective change, even your taste buds change. We can retrain our dopamine. And rather than constantly focusing on restrain, 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 switch it, and actually find a dopamine rush from getting yourself up and ready. And it does work. And you can say, ooh, my phone's now a reward rather than my conditional start to my day. Now I'm going to use my phone time as a reward for doing my other functionalities that are important, getting my homework done. I tell students all the time, if you're struggling to get your homework done and you know you're on a phone too much, switch it. Use your phone as a reward rather than your, oh, I'm going to. I'm just going to watch these two shows quick before I do my homework. No, you're not. You're gonna watch seven shows and not do your homework all. And then you're gonna tell your professor you had a headache or a concussion and you couldn't make it because the flu went through your dorm. Right. And so you make excuses and then you start lying to yourself and you get into dysfunction and then you're trapped. And so it's trying to switch it. I'm not saying put your phone away and never use it again or send it home to your parents or those it's not really practical. But switch how you use it, when you use it.
1: Yeah. Get that behavior that's gonna strengthen your recovery even before you feel like doing it or even before you even like Hundred percent have agreed cognitively that this is what you want to do. If there's a part of you that wants to change, just start putting those behaviors in place. Yeah, and if you know the,
0: you to make yeah, it- if you know you need to change and you don't feel like doing it, so what? The commitment will change the feeling, right? I don't always want to go to work. I go right. I know I need to, I know it's part of my provision for my family and it's part of my job and I don't want to get fired, all those things. Right. So we always like, I don't really feel like changing my phone habits, but I'm failing. But my boyfriend and girlfriend's getting ready to leave me, you know, but I'm getting ready to get fired. Okay. So let's change the feeling by changing the commitment or changing the processes. And so being very conscious of that.
1: Yeah. I love that. One
0: of of the things I do, Karen, is I don't, as you, because sometimes you try to get hold of me, I don't leave my phone on. At all. I leave it off all the almost all the time. And what is it called when you get the updates? I don't let it buzz or ding or anything. I just keep it off.
1: Notifications, yeah.
0: Notifications. Thank you. It wasn't complicated. So I just <laughs> keep those off. So even now when we're doing this podcast, and then I have a bunch of sessions later today, I'm not constantly in my head hearing that noise right. and losing my present feeling to talk to these folks who are paying me good money to to get counsel. Right. And it helps me a ton. And then I, you know what I say, something's really super, super important. Someone will get a hold of me when they need to get a hold of me and we'll figure it out. Otherwise, I'm I'm also training clients and training my kids and training students that I'm not 24-7 accessible 365 days a year right. for the rest of my life. And really, the higher positions of leadership you have, the more you got to train the people under you not to expect you to be available. And so if you tell somebody, I'm off today then be off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you tell your boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm not going to check this today so we can be present in a relationship, then follow through on your commitment. Be a man or woman of your word. Even if you need to, leave your phone on the kitchen counter and go have your date.
1: And on a related note that I don't know a lot about, but I'm going to be reading a book about it very soon, there's electromagnetic radiation that's coming mm-hmm. through our phones. And I know that's why we don't want to put them to our head too often. I think the earbud option is better for our sure. brains. But these things are got something going on all the time unless you turn it off. And I'm just seeing some research now that is revealing that's not good for us either. And I will report back later when I have more on that. But that's another point. I've heard people say you have to put it in airplane mode to make sure those, whatever the radiation or whatever it is. Two more Um,
0: drastic examples to highlight and maybe as we start to close up. We wouldn't think of having our children Six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, we wouldn't think of giving them a beer for breakfast, a shot of vodka for lunch and a martini at dinner. And if we did that, we wouldn't be surprised or shocked when they're completely addicted and a compulsive alcoholic by age 17. And yet that's what we're doing with our phones now. Yeah. And I've watched videos from very scientific, respected people saying having our phone in our pocket all day long is almost the same as having a bag of cocaine and how dangerous that is. You can't imagine what it would be like, right? If we knew someone was a cocaine junkie and they were constantly carrying cocaine in their pocket or their purse all day long, the temptation, right? We struggle as 50-year-olds to balance our phone use. What do we expect an 11-year-old to do and why are we mad at them when they (laughs) struggle with it when we're like We're in charge. We're in that process. So same thing in the dating realm, same thing in romantic realm, recognize the wonderful availability and accessibility of it. But it's got to be talked about if we're trying to build intimacy that sustains and builds commitment and strength. Otherwise, it's the whole trust foundation relationship can be fragile and eradicated simply by the phone. It's like there's four people in your relationship, you, your partner, and your two phones. (laughs) And some folks have to have two phones.
1: Yeah, it's really hard for us to wrap our mind to fully wrap our mind around it cuz we're learning about it in real time. And I do think about Gen X was the first generation of parents who had this technology come in 2007 the iPhone rolled out where now we have a smartphone that really changed the game too. I don't know, history will reveal what yeah. happened. I could see I could imagine a future where things really pull back and parents
0: have to I They're going to choice. have to yeah. have, it's
1: going to have to be a conversation you have with your pediatrician even. Let's talk. Yep.
0: Remember because when cigarette smoking was so commonplace, no one worried about it? Right? Oh, in yeah. 40s and 50s, it was like actually considered healthy, positive yeah, the doctors fear. doctors
1: smoked, yeah.
0: Yeah, connection and socialness and all that. And now we look back and like, oh my gosh, we are the biggest idiots in the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying anyone who smokes an idiot. I know that's a difficult addiction as well. And I understand it's hard. But again, I, when you go to Sam's Club or Walmart and you see literally babies with phones in their hand while they're shopping. Mm-hmm. And you see little eight, nine-month-old scrolling. Mm-hmm. And, and as a walking psychologist professor, I'm like, how do I stop myself from going up and trying to love on that family and just say, please consider doing something else? I, I'm almost old enough now. I'll probably start doing it. But those are the kind of things that we're not thinking or we're not recognizing. We don't understand or know yet. The research you, is certainly leaning that way hard. Oh,
1: yeah. If you have just a few seconds to help me out, I would so appreciate it. You can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts giving us a five-star rating and a few sentences of review that helps others find the program and join the love and life family. As we wrap up, I'm going to read this and we'll leave this as a, like a teaser. Cause I think we should segue into this for part two of this conversation. You have okay. to rehab from phone dependency and how it's damaging your relationship. You have a perspective to consider. I don't need my phone to be me, to be loved, to be effective, to be influential, to be happy, or to be cool. And I love that. I think it's a perfect punctuation to wrap up today and then also to lead us into delving to that a little bit more in depth in subsequent episodes.
0: Yeah. It's part of the ABC reality therapy stuff that your whole dating empowerment books about in that same kind of process. I just tweaked the acronym to do what I want to do, but it's the same kind of process that we have to acknowledge and we have to understand the boundaries and that leads to the change. And so we have to have perspectives to help us broaden on our understanding, but you have to put the practices in. You have to do the behavior. Yeah. I'd love to dive into that more next time.
1: The love and life hack for this week is, are there four people in your relationship as Elliot and I noted, phones are ubiquitous to modern life and modern relationships, so we will continue this conversation in an upcoming episode. Thank you, as always, for sharing a portion of your day with us. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen anderson April, and until next time, make it a great week.